Chapter One of Hushed Up by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Story of Owen Bidolph. Chapter One. Beside Still Waters. If I make too frequent use of the first-person singular in these pages, I crave forgiveness of the reader. I have written down this strange story for two reasons. First, because I venture to believe it to be one of the most remarkable sequences of curious events that have ever occurred in a man's life, and secondly, by doing so, I am able to prove conclusively before the world of one sadly misjudged, and also to set at rest certain scandalous tales which have arisen in consequence. At risk of betraying certain confidences, at risk of placing myself in the unenviable position of chronicler of my own misfortunes, at risk even of defying those who have threatened my life should I dare speak the truth, I have resolved to recount the whole amazing affair, just as it occurred to me, and further to reveal completely what has hitherto been regarded as a mystery by readers of the daily newspapers. You already know my name, Owen Bidolph. As introduction I suppose I ought to add that, after coming down from Oxford, I pretended to read for the bar, just to please the dear old governor, Sir Alfred Bidolph, knight. At the age of twenty-five, owing to his unfortunate death in the hunting-field, I found myself possessor of Carrington Court, our fine Elizabethan place in North Devon, and townhouse 64A Wilton Street, Belgrave Square, together with a comfortable income of about nine thousand a year, mostly derived from sound industrial enterprises. My father, before his retirement, had been a Liverpool shipowner, and like many others of his class, had received his knighthood on the occasion of Queen Victoria's Jubilee. My mother had been dead long since. I had but few relatives, and those mostly poor ones. Therefore, on succeeding to the property, I went down to Carrington just to interview Browning, the butler, and the other servants, all of them old and faithful retainers. And then, having given up all thought of a legal career, I went abroad in order to attain my long-desired ambition to travel and to see the world. Continental life attracted me, just as it attracts most young men. Paris, with its glare and glitter, its superficial gaiety, its bright boulevards, and its feminine beauty, is the candle to the moth of youth. I reveled in Paris just as many a thousand other young men had done before me. I knew French, Italian, and German, and I was vain enough to believe that I might have within me the making of a cosmopolitan. So many young men believe that, and alas, so many fail on account of either indolence or of narrow-mindedness. To be a thoroughgoing cosmopolitan one must be imbued with the true spirit of adventure, and must be a citizen of all cities, a countryman of all countries. This I tried to be, and perhaps in a manner succeeded. At any rate I spent nearly three whole years travelling hither and thither across the face of Europe, from Trondheim to Constantinople, and from Bordeaux to Petersburg. Truly, if one has money, one can lead a very pleasant life, year in, year out, at the various European health and pleasure resorts, without even setting foot in our dear old England. I was young and enthusiastic. I spent the glorious golden autumn in Florence and in Perugia, the Tuscan village in Old Siena, December in Sicily, 
January in Corsica, February and March at Nice, taking part in the Carnival and Battles of Flowers, April in Venice, May at the Via d'Este on the Lake of Cuomo, June and July at X, August the month of the lion among the chestnut woods high up at Bellambrosa, and September at San Sebastian in Spain, that pretty town of sea-bathing and of gambling. Next year I spent the winter in Russia, the guest of a prince who lived near Moscow, the early spring at the Hermitage at Monte Carlo, May at the Maurice in Paris, the summer in various parts of Switzerland, and most of the autumn in the high Tatra, the foothills of the Carthaginians. And so with my faithful Italian valet, Lorenzo, a dark-haired smart man of thirty, who had been six years in my service, and who had on so many occasions proved himself entirely trustworthy, I passed away the seasons as they came and went, always living in the best hotels and making a good many passing acquaintances. Life was, indeed, a perfect phantasmagoria. Now there is a certain section of English society who, being for some reason or another beyond the pale at home, make their happy hunting-ground in the foreign hotel. Men and women, consumptive sons and scraggy daughters, they generally live in the cheapest rooms en pension, and are ever ready to scrape up acquaintance with anybody of good appearance and of either sex, as long as they are possessed of money. Everyone who has lived much on the continent knows them, and, be it said, gives them a wide berth. I was not long before I experienced many queer acquaintanceships in hotels, some amusing, some the reverse. At Verona a man, an Englishman named Davis, who had been at my college in Oxford, borrowed fifty pounds of me, but disappeared from the hotel next morning before I came down, while, among other similar incidents, a dear, quiet-mannered old widow, a Russian who spoke English, induced me at Ostend to assist her to pay her hotel bill of one thousand six hundred francs, giving me a check upon her bank in Petersburg, a check which in due course was returned to me marked no account. Still I enjoyed myself. The carelessness of life suited me, for I managed to obtain sunshine the whole year round, and to have a good deal of fun for my money. I had a fine sixty-horsepower motor-car, and usually travelled from place to place on it, my friend Jack Marlowe, who had been in Oxford with me, and whose father's estates marched with mine on the edge of Dartmoor, frequently coming out to spend a week or two with me on the roads. He was studying for the diplomatic service, but made many excuses for holidays, which he invariably spent at my side. And we had a merry time together, I can assure you. For nearly three years I had led this life of erratic wandering, returning to London only for a week or so in June, to see my lawyers and put in an appearance for a few days at Carrington to interview old Browning. And I must confess, I found the old place deadly dull and lonely. Boodles, to which I belonged, just as my father had belonged, I found full of pompous boars and old fogies, and though at White's there was a little more life and movement now they had built a new roof, yet I preferred the merry recklessness of Monte Carlo, or the gaiety of the white and gold casinos at Nice or Cannes. Thus nearly three years went by, careless years of luxury and idleness, years of living a la carte at restaurants of the first order, from the reserve at Boulieu to the Hermitage at Moscow, from Armenavilla in the Bois to Salvini's in Milan, years of the education, 
of an epicure. The first instant of this strange history, however, occurred while I was spending the early spring at Gardoni. Possibly you, as an English reader, have never heard of the place. If, however, you were Austrian, you would know it as one of the most popular resorts on the beautiful mountain-fringed lake of Garda, that deep blue lake half in Italian territory and half in Austrian, with the quaint little town of Denzano at the Italian end, and Riva with its square old church tower and big white hotels at the extreme north. Of all the spring resorts on the Italian lakes, Gardone appeals to the visitor as one of the quietest and most picturesque. The Grand Hotel with its long terraces at the lakeside is, during February and March, filled with a gay crowd who spend most of their time in climbing the steep mountainsides towards the jealously guarded frontier, or taking motorboat excursions up and down the picturesque lake. From the balcony of my room spread a panorama as beautiful as any in Europe, more charming indeed than at Lugano or Bellagio or other of the many lakeside resorts, for here along the sheltered banks grew all the luxuriant vegetation of the Riviera, the camellias, magnolias, aloes, and palms. I had been there ten days or so when, one evening at dinner in the long restaurant which overlooked the lake, there came to the small table opposite mine a tall, fair-haired girl with great blue eyes, dressed elegantly but quietly in black chiffon, with a band of pale pink velvet twisted in her hair. She glanced at me quickly as she drew aside her skirt and took her seat opposite her companion, a rather stout, dark, bald-headed man, red-faced and well-dressed, whose air was distinctly paternal as he bent and handed the menu across to her. The man turned and glanced sharply around. By his well-coat dinner coat, the way his dress shirt fitted, and his refinement of manner, I at once put him down as a gentleman and her father. I instantly decided, on account of their smartness of dress, that they were not English. Indeed, the man addressed her in French, to which she responded. Her coiffure was in the latest mode of Paris, her gown showed unmistakably the hand of the French dressmaker, while her elegance was essentially that of the Parisian. There is always something, something indescribable, about the Frenchwoman which is marked and distinctive, and which the English-bred woman can never actually imitate. Not that I like French women. Far from it. They are too vain and shallow, too fond of gaiety and flattery to suit my taste. No, among all the many women I have met, I have never found any to compare with those of my own people. I don't know why I watched the newcomers so intently. Perhaps it was on account of the deliberate and careful manner in which the man selected his dinner, his instructions to the matre d'hôtel, as to the manner the entree was to be made, and the infinite pains he took over the exact vintage he required. He spoke in French, fluent and exact, and his manner was entirely that of the epicure. Or was it because of that girl, the girl with eyes of that deep fathomless blue, the wonderful blue of the lake as it lay in the sunlight, the lake that was nearly a mile in depth? In her face I detected a strange, almost wistful look, an expression which showed that her thoughts were far away from the laughter and chatter of that gay restaurant. She looked at me without seeing me. She spoke to her father without knowing what she replied. There was in those wonderful eyes a strange, far-off look, 
and it was that which, more than anything else, attracted my attention and caused me to notice the pair. Her fair sweet countenance was perfect in its contour, her cheeks innocent of the Parisian's usual aids to beauty, her lips red and well molded, while two tiny dimples gave a piquancy to a face which was far more beautiful than any I had met in all my wanderings. Again she raised her eyes from the table and gazed across the flowers at me fixedly, with just a sudden inquisitiveness shown by her slightly knit brows. Then, starting suddenly, as though realizing she was looking at a stranger, she dropped her eyes again and replied to some question her father had addressed to her. Her dead black gown was cut just discreetly décoté, which well became a girl not yet twenty, while at her throat suspended by a very thin gold chain was a single stone, a splendid ruby of enormous size and of evident value. The only other ornament she wore was a curious antique bracelet in the form of a jeweled snake, the tail of which was in its mouth, the ancient emblem of eternity. Why she possessed such an attraction for me I cannot tell except that she seemed totally unlike any other woman I had ever met before, a face that was as perfect as any I had seen on the canvases of the great painters or in the marbles of the Louvre or the Vatican. Again she raised her eyes to mine. Again I realized that the expression was entirely unusual. Then she dropped them again, and in a slow inert way ate the crayfish soup which the waiter had placed before her. Others in the big long room had noticed her beauty, for I saw people whispering among themselves, while her father, leaning back in his chair on placing down his spoon, was entirely conscious of the sensation his daughter had evoked. Throughout the meal I watched the pair carefully, trying to overhear their conversation. It was, however, always in low, confidential tones, and strain my ears how I might, I could gather nothing. They spoke in French, which I detected from the girl's monosyllables, but beyond that I could understand nothing. From the obsequious manner of the maître d'hôtel I knew that her father was a person of importance. Yet the man who knows what to order in a restaurant, and orders it with instructions, is certain to receive marked attention. The epicure always commands the respect of those who serve him, and surely this stranger was an epicure, for after his dessert I heard him order with his coffee a petit verre of gold water of Danzig, a rare liqueur only known and appreciated by the very select few who really know what is what, a bottle of which if you search Europe from end to end you will not find in perhaps twenty restaurants, and those only of the very first order. The eyes of the fair-haired girl haunted me. Instinctively I knew that she was no ordinary person. Her apathy and listlessness, her strangely vacant look, combined with the wonderful beauty of her countenance, held me fascinated. Who was she? What mystery surrounded her? I felt by some strange intuition that there was a mystery, and that that curious wistfulness in her glance betrayed itself because, though accompanied by her father, she was nevertheless in sore need of a friend. When her father had drained his coffee they rose and passed into the great lounge, with its many little tables set beneath the palms, where a fine orchestra was playing Maillard's tuneful Le Dragon de Villa. As they seated themselves many among that well-dressed gay crowd of winter idlers turned to look at them. 
I, however, seldom went into the nightly concert, therefore I strolled along the wide corridor to the hall porter and inquired the names of the fresh arrivals. "'Yes, monsieur,' replied the big, dark-bearded German. "'You mean, of course, numbers one hundred and seventeen and one hundred and forty-six, English father and daughter, arrived by the five o'clock boat from Riva with a great deal of baggage. Here are the names, and he showed me the slips signed by them on arrival. They are the only newcomers today. There I saw, written on one in a man's bold hand, Richard Pennington, Frontier, Salisbury, England, and on the other, Sylvia Pennington. I thought they were French, I remarked. So did I, monsieur. They speak French so well. I was surprised when they registered themselves as English. End of chapter one. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's audiobooks.com.